up here this morning because driving into ASU and coming to church, I think it's two of my favorite things in the world, the sun devils and Jesus. So this is like combining two of my great life passions, actually, um, being here. And it was also kind of fun to, to drive up and to see the trailer out there. Um, my wife and I planted a church about 20 years ago that we pastored for almost 10 years, and uh, we know the trailer days. I mean, you come with the trailer and set up and tear down and all that fun stuff that a church uh, that meets in a rented space gets to do. Um, and I know sometimes that might get tiring, um, but there, there's times when, you know, the community that comes out of that and the connections, it's, it's so good and so rich. I have so many good memories, even though there were days where it was frustrating that I had to get up at five in the morning to go set things up. Um, well, it's good to be with you. Um, I uh, got to know Matt, your pastor, um, in 2019, and uh, from that time I've been praying um, for this church and kind of watching from afar, so it's, it's, uh, it's kind of fun to, to get to be a part of this today um, for a lot of reasons, to see you, to see people that I've been praying for, um, and uh, to be in a place that my friend Matt um, gets to uh, love people and shepherd people, and I... I can imagine you love him. Uh, he and Jen and their family are amazing. I, I met him in 2019, and um, it was also in 2019 that I had um, a stem cell bone marrow transplant. And you maybe have heard of that kind of thing before, but I'd been, I'd been battling um, lymphoma for a couple of years, and I got rid of it, and it came back, and I was doing more treatment, and then in the midst of treatment for the lymphoma, I developed um, an acute leukemia, which um, was, was very serious. And, uh, and the doctors were like, okay, we're going we're gonna to have to really get aggressive with all this. And, and they basically said the only hope that I had was to have this stem cell bone marrow transplant. So I was admitted to the hospital basically with the goal that they would completely wipe out my immune system down to zero so that I could take someone else's cells into my body and hopefully reboot the system. That was, that was the idea. And, and it was four years ago, so obviously it worked, and I'm very grateful for that. It's working to this point, um, and I'm thankful. Um, but it has. Um, there's little complications or you know, side effects, but um, thankfully I have someone else's stem cells, their blood in my body um, and it saved my life. And what was fascinating about that whole experience is that I received those stem cells, that donation, the transplant happened on a, on a Friday, and it was actually Good Friday. And, and it, it's never lost on me that it was like the Lord was, was just like reminding me of, of what was happening. Um, and it was such a picture of what happened on the cross and God's heart for me in giving his blood. And then there's this person at that point anonymous to me on the other side of the world is actually a man from Germany, um, 10 years younger than me. And I always remind my wife of that, that there's part of me that, you know, is probably a little older, but, but the, you know, the good stuff is 10 years younger. Um, and uh, this person, they gave of themselves that I could live. And I'm here because they gave. 
And, and at the time, uh, my, my donor was anonymous to me, and I was anonymous to him. Uh, when they first do a transplant like that, you, you don't know who the other person is. And, um, but I wanted desperately to know who this person was. I wanted to be able to thank them. And so they have a deal where after two years, you can submit paperwork. And if the other person you know, is willing, then you can share names and get to know each other. And so it was almost two years to the day that I submitted my paperwork. And almost within a week, I heard back. And I got to know... Um, the contact information, it started really just with an email address of a man named Rolf in uh, the south uh, eastern part of Germany, which I began to learn was Bavaria, which is very distinct, if you know much about Germany. Um, and we began to correspond over email, started following each other on social media. And then two months ago, uh, my wife Jennifer and I got to go to Germany and meet Rolf and his family, his wife and his family, some of his extended family. And it was one of the most amazing experiences of our life. Um, I can say that hands down. It was a spiritual experience, a mystical experience. It was absolutely um, incredible. And it started with us driving, you know, coming up in a train to this little... German village of Bad Kotzin, probably about 7,000 people in total in this little idyllic German village. And there is Rolf and his wife Sandra waiting for us at the train station. And I mean, the tears just start to come and we make our way and we begin to connect with them over a long weekend. And, you know, in the, in the days, in, in the months before, the weeks before, but especially the days before, and then very intensely on the train ride, it was about a two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour train ride from Munich, I began to say, Lord, what do I say to this person? I mean, what do you say to someone who has given of themselves that you could have life? And, and we knew we wanted to say thank you, but as, as it got closer and as the train got closer, thank you just didn't seem like enough. I mean, that, it almost felt trite to say thank you, but yet that's what compelled us to go and, and to be there. And, and as I prayed about it and said, Lord, what do, what do we do? I just felt like the, the Spirit of God just kept saying, just be present. Just, just be there. Like, okay, we can do that. We can do that. And so... Um, you know, we arrived, and, and Rolf and Sandra introduced us to family and friends. We shared meals together. And, and every time that I would look at, at Rolf and I would say thank you, and often with just, you know, emotion, sometimes some tears in my eyes, I would say thank you, he would just almost brush it off. And, and time and time again, he would just kind of brush it off and just put his arm around me and, and say, come on. You know, it was like, let's, let's have something to eat. Let's, let's seek to connect a little bit deeper. And, and it became really clear very quickly. And, and I want you to hear this, that, that thankfulness is what got us there. But it wasn't why we were there. A thankful heart, gratefulness is what got us there. But it was really for connection that they were there. 
Rolf and, and Sandra and his family, they just wanted to connect with us. They wanted to get to know us, and, and it led to us wanting to get to know them. And, you know, in, in those moments, we found ourselves really experiencing what was already there. Um, there was a connection. I mean, Rolf's, it, it's kind of surreal. His DNA was in my body. It's, it's what saved me. It's what's continuing to keep me moderately healthy. Um, and we were already connected because of that, because of the shared experience of him donating, being hooked up to this machine for hours and hours and hours, and then the cells brought to me. And we, we shared this experience. We were already connected. And he even mentioned that at one point during our time, because I feel like I've known you forever. How weird is that? How amazing, wonderful, sweet is that? And, and what we realized is there was nothing for us to prove to them. We didn't have to prove how grateful we were. There was nothing for us to achieve, but it was just the connection to enjoy with them. And, and as we were experiencing all of that, uh, one of the things that came to my mind was, you know, Psalm 100 well, as, as I say that, you might not go, oh yeah, I can recite it. But, but as I say this, you'll know these verses. Psalm 100 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Is that familiar? Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Now, there in Psalm 100, it says that, but why? It says, because we are his people the sheep of his pasture. In other words, we are connected. We are connected to God. And so we enter and we arrive into the experience of God's presence through gratefulness, enter his courts with thanksgiving and his gates with praise. We enter through that, but it doesn't stop there. The point is connection. It's to connect with God. The desire is for experiencing the reality that already defines the relationship. In our, in our lives with God, there, there is a danger that we can get stuck at the gates, just thanking God. And it's appropriate. You know, we come, we, we, we say thank you, we, we are grateful, but there's, there's a danger that we can just get stuck there, thanking Him for what He's done, for the cross, for deliverance, and then not enter in and experience his presence that is already there and available. I think sometimes if we just stay at the gates or at the entry, God says, okay, okay, come on, come on, let's connect. I've heard the thank you. That's great, wonderful. See, God's not narcissistic. He doesn't need for us to thank him. Have you ever thought about that? I think sometimes we think, well, God needs for us to praise him, you know. No, he does not need that <laughs> at all. He doesn't need our praise. You know why he desires it? It's because it brings us to his gates, to his courts. Gratefulness, thankfulness is what gets us there, but it's so that we would connect and, and, and do life together. And think, think about this for a moment. The father and the prodigal son parable. You know, Jesus told Luke chapter 15, uh, the prodigal son, uh, you know, goes off, does his own thing, 
and he realizes it is, life is much better with the Father. <laughs> I want to go back and be with the Father. He's got this whole apology lined up, and he comes back. And if you remember in the parable, the Father doesn't even listen to the apology. He hears the first couple of words, and he's like, okay, 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 come on. And it's this thing. And, and, I, and I picture that with God, that when we turn our hearts towards him, whether it's in, in thankfulness and gratefulness, or it's out of suffering, or it's out of confession, when our hearts are turned toward him, we may have a speech prepared, we may feel like we have to say the right things, and he just says, okay, okay, come on. And he pulls us close to embrace us, to be with us. It's a grateful heart that gets us moving. But the point is to experience the closeness that's already there. So years ago, the, the rabbis of the Jewish faith started noticing something at the, the Seder meal that would happen during Passover week. Are you familiar with the Seder meal? It's, it's the meal that the Jewish people, sometimes Christians do this as well because of how it connects with the cross and, and what happens at, at, at Easter during Holy Week. Uh, but the Jewish tradition, uh, the people celebrate what they call a Seder meal, where they basically go back through the history of being delivered from slavery in Egypt. That's what the Seder meal does. And they do it every year um, during Passover. And what the rabbis began to notice is that the people were, were really stopping short of the intended purpose. Uh, they were focused on the history of what happened during the exodus and their deliverance, their salvation, maybe even feeling thankful for it, but they were losing the reason. Because the point of the Seder meal was not a history lesson. You know, the point, we're going to take communion in a little bit, the point of taking communion is not a history lesson. It's not, okay, this is what Jesus did for me, and I did the, right? That's, that's not the point. And so the rabbis started doing something very interesting. The rabbis started uh, having the Song of Solomon read at the end of the Seder meal. They would go through and remember their deliverance, and then they would read the Song of Solomon. Why? To remind them that they were delivered for a reason. And it wasn't to, to rehearse and know the history. It was for connection, the experience of a connection that had already been established. And so I want to take a few moments this morning and, and look at some highlights in the Song of Solomon and why the rabbis would do that, why as Christians we would see the Song of Solomon as a sacred, instructive book. Now, the Song of Solomon um, in, in the Hebrew actually is the Song of Songs, you may have heard it that way. Depending on what Bible you're reading, it'll say Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. But in Hebrew, it's literally Song of Songs, which in the Hebrew mindset, whenever you double something, it just means it's like the best ever. So um, uh, when the scriptures talk about Jesus being the King of Kings, it means he, he's the best king ever. The Lord of Lords, the best Lord ever, anything like that that's doubled. So what it's saying is this song or this poem um, uh, of Solomon, it's, it's the best. 
This is the highest. Um, and it is a love poem or a song between a husband and a wife, and, and it speaks of deep connection. And we can read it on that level, on the human level, and it can be very instructive, but it's really much more than that. It is a picture of the love that God has for his people. And that's how the church fathers and mothers over the centuries have almost exclusively viewed it. In fact, so precious um, in, in the scriptures is the Song of Solomon for understanding God's heart for us that there are more commentaries written by theologians and scholars in the first thousand years of the church on Song of Solomon than any other book in the Bible. For someone who is a serious student and scholar of the scriptures, like the highest thing that they could achieve was to study and then write and reflect and meditate on the Song of Songs. All of the church mothers and fathers, it's in their writings all of it. And this is why the rabbis would read it at the end of the Seder to remind people, don't get stuck at the door and just say thanks. Don't just be right there at the gates singing your worship songs. It's, that's a good thing, but the point is connection. It's intimacy. And so God uses the, the, the imagery, the metaphor of a marriage relationship to describe his relationship with us. And we see this in the New Testament, right? The church is the bride of Christ. We see that imagery. Um, in the Old Testament writings, the people, you see this all throughout the prophets, for example, the people were repeatedly um, said to be unfaithful lovers of God. And it was put in intimate terms, in the terms of husband and wife. And then God, with the Song of Songs, comes and gives this beautiful, redemptive vision of the love between husband and wife. And the early church saw this as a description of Christ's love for his people. In John 15, you might remember this statement that Jesus makes when he looks at his disciples and he says, I no longer call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. And this is a significant thing that Jesus was doing here. That, that word friend, it builds on one of the several Greek words for love. And what he was really saying is, you are my loved ones. I am your rabbi, I'm your master, I'm your Lord. They would increasingly understand he was their God. But he says, you're my loved ones. You're beloved to me. And the New Testament writers developed this. In Christ, we are called the beloved of God. This is repeated over and over again in the New Testament writings. You can almost miss it if you're not paying attention. Beloved, let us love one another. It can almost seem like a little throwaway, but it's not. It's the Greek word agapetos, beloved. Beloved, we are God's children. And then the apostle will, will say something. You know, consider that at, at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, the father says to Jesus, this is my beloved son. 
beloved. And when the people who are observing that, and the, the writers of the New Testament, certainly that's found in Matthew 3, Matthew, a, a Jewish person, those who are hearing it, they would have heard that word beloved. And their whole theological imagination was shaped by the Old Testament scriptures. And so that word beloved is found 42 times in the Old Testament. 26 of those are in, can you guess where? The Song of Songs. So to use that word beloved or beloved, it was speaking to an intense, intimate relationship. And we're, we're going we're gonna, to pull out a few highlights here in a moment. But the Song of Songs is significant in understanding and living as the beloved, which is who we are in Christ. If you've come to know Christ and you are in Christ, you are the beloved. That identifies you as a reality of who you are more than anything else, any other label, anything you might think about yourself, any circumstance you're in. You are the beloved. So I want to take the next few minutes. And Matt said I had like 45 minutes to an hour to preach. Is that true? Yeah, all these nervous laughter. I know, it's not really that long. I was, a couple of weeks ago, I was um, uh, in Kuwait um, working with a group of house churches um, in that Middle Eastern country, and we were kind of going from house church to house church. It's really beautiful. And they are used to very long sermons. And one of my friends that I was with, he's used to very short sermons, and so he would preach like a 20, 30-minute sermon, and they would be like, is that all? Do you want more? And so I get up to preach, and I'm like, how much time do I have? And they go, oh, they're used to it, as long as you want. Overtime is great for them. So um, I won't take you into overtime. But I do want to make um, a few observations about what we can learn about belovedness or being the beloved, living as the beloved from the Song of Songs. And so first, I want us to look at God's posture toward us. That we, can, that we can observe from the Song of Songs? And then what is our invitation in response? And the Song of Songs is, is eight chapters long. I'd encourage you to read through it. Um, we're not going to be able to read through it. We're just doing kind of some overview kind of things here that hopefully could give you some things to hang on to. But the first thing is to notice uh, God's posture toward us. And it's described in this poem, this song, as as the lover with the beloved. The lover is, is Solomon or the, the husband here, and then the lover is the bride. That's us, that's God's people. He sees us as his beloved. Now, now here's two things about that that show up in the song. And the first one is that God has a deep affection for us. Is a deep affection for us. And, and I want you to just listen to the th kind of things that are described as being from God's heart to his people, okay? And, and, and this is, it's one thing to say, oh, I know God loves me. Oh, God has affection for me. But consider what's being said here. Three times in the song, he says, you are the most beautiful. God looking at his beloved. You are beautiful. 
In chapter 4, verse 9, he says, you have captivated my heart. Now, can you imagine that God, when he looks at you, he says, you captivate me. You captivate me. In, in, that, in that same section there in chapter 4, he says, with one look of your eyes, I'm just like some translations into the English say ravished. And it's as though what God is saying to his people, to us, is when you look at me, oh, my heart beats faster. You captivate my heart. He says, how much better is your love than wine? He's saying, when you respond to me, when you look at me, my beloved, my people, ah. he says, and then, and then there's an intensity to it. In chapter 6, we read this, turn your eyes away from me. Now, this is God speaking to his beloved. Turn your eyes away from me, for they overwhelm me. God is saying to us, his beloved, his people, you overwhelm me. Now, just to pause here for a moment, can your theology hold that? I know for many of us, we may have grown up with a discipleship or a teaching that the baseline is we're miserable sinners, and it's like you better never forget it, right? And, and the song and the scriptures are not saying that that isn't true, but I would suggest to you that the baseline is that we are beloved. And that, that sin, when that's considered, it's, it's always because sin is something, and this, I think this is the perfect way to understand sin, sin is something that turns our gaze away from God. Sin is something where we're not trusting God and looking at Him. God, hear me. If you take this out of context, so help, no. Uh, God's not so much concerned about your sin. You know, he's concerned about that you know that he thinks you're beautiful, that you captivate his heart. That's the baseline of being his beloved. He says, our love toward him is better than any other imaginable thing. This, the second thing is, is we see in the Song of Songs is that God desires to be with us, to connect, to share life with us. And we see that in the many descriptions throughout the song um, where it talks about embracing the bride. That language is used over and over again. His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. And it makes me think of when I was with my donor, Rolf, and I would say, thank you, and he would just almost brush it off. And I, I mean, I can still remember it. He would just put his arm around me and just pull me close. And that's God's heart for us, is to connect with us. So the essence of, of being the beloved, the reason for our salvation, is connection, to connect with him. And, and I realize that often saying God loves us can feel nebulous or, or vague, but the reality is that it's very specific. It's very specific. You know, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, I know God loves me because he has to, right? He's God. He loves everybody. Okay, and we can almost feel like we kind of get lumped in, right? 
It's, it's not that kind of love. You are beloved. He's passionate about you. He loves spending time with you. He loves it when your glance goes his way. There's a weightiness to that. And so then the second side of it, a few observations. What's the invitation for us? So we can know that, and I I hope you can receive the the weightiness of that reality. Uh, But how do we live into that? Well, the song also gives a beautiful picture of what it can look like to live as the beloved. A life of connectedness, of spiritual intimacy is really one of the best ways to say it. And so there's two things. Um, There's two things to notice, and there's two things to nurture in our responsiveness to God. The two things to notice, the first one is desire, the second one is distraction. Desire and distraction will always be a part of uh, our journey with God. And first, we, we simply notice desire. The song of songs begins with the words, your love is better than wine. And that's the beloved saying to God, the lover of souls, your love is better than wine. And then throughout the, the song, the words, my heart is sick with love. There's this desire. And so the beloved prays, draw me after you. Let us run. And so we're invited to notice desire is the first thing. Um, Pastor and author Alan Jones in his book Soul Making writes, a human being is a longing for God. That's who you are. You are a longing for God. And the desire, it's already there. It's not something you have to get. It's not something you have to go, I don't really feel like I have a lot of desire for God. Oh, you have desire for God. It's noticing it. It's paying attention to it. In fact, all desires that we have in life is in some way connected to desire for God. You want to feel secure. You want to feel valued. All those things are connected to a desire that we have to live as the beloved of God. So we notice desire. And then second, we notice distraction. There will be distractions along the way. Um, In in chapter 2 of of the song, verse 15, we read the words, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. There's always going to be little distractions, little things that want to turn your gaze away from connecting with the lover of your soul. And if you're seeking to connect with God, there will be things that will distract the noise of the world our own insecurities, the evil one. And the idea is not so much to try to get rid of distractions. I think sometimes that's how we're, we're taught or that's almost intuitively how we think about it, to get rid of distractions. Um, but the idea is to notice them and just let them go. Uh, the wisdom of those who practice contemplative prayer is to notice and then gently let distractions go. Some of the most distracting things can be our circumstances, our thoughts. And so we tend to think that our circumstances and even our thoughts are who we are. And do you see the distraction in that? Who we are is the beloved of God. 
But we have these circumstances and we think, oh, I'm this or I'm that. Or we have these thoughts. Even our thoughts are not who we are. Our thoughts can be a lot of things. But we just notice them and go, oh, that's my thought. Temptation. (laughs) There's so many different things that could distract us. And the the invitation is just notice them and then return. I'm the beloved. And it may take you a long time to notice, and that's okay. You may notice some distractions quickly. But whatever it is, it's always just a returning of the gaze to God. So we learn to notice desire and distraction, and there will be a test on this next week. Um, And then there's two things that we nurture, awareness and attentiveness. Uh, Awareness and attentiveness. The beloved we see in the Song of Songs nurtures awareness. She listens. Most of what we know about uh, about the, the lover or the lover of our souls in the song is through dialogue. It's through uh, the beloved having listened. There's several other descript- descriptions of, of what he's saying, and, and the idea is that God is always speaking. And are we listening? And then the other thing we see about nurturing awareness with the, the bride or the beloved in the song is that she's always looking for him. The question that permeates the song is, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Oh, he's there. Look at what he's doing. And there's always this, there's, a, there's an ear to try to listen. In chapter 2, it actually says, oh, his voice, his voice. But then there's this looking, where is he? And for us, theologically, the assumption that we can live in very clearly is that he's always present. He's always with us. And so awareness means I'm always looking. God, how are you with me? God, what are you up to? You see, in this connectedness, this spiritual intimacy we're invited into, we're not making it happen, but we're seeking awareness of what God is doing and how he's at work. I love, I love this, this description that Jesus actually gives of himself in John chapter 5, where he says, the Son of Man can only do what he sees the Father doing. And that really explains the pattern that we see of Jesus of engagement, and then he would retreat. And so Jesus wasn't always out there healing people and doing, doing teaching and whatever, um, but he was involved, he was engaged, and then he would retreat. And he had to be in a quiet space so that he could be aware of what the Father was up to, what the Father was doing. So awareness and then secondly, attentiveness or responsiveness. And this is described over and over again in the song, but most prominently at the end of chapter 4, and it's, and it's about openness, surrender. As the the bride says, let my beloved come to me. There's this openness. It makes me think of Revelation chapter 3, and this may be a familiar verse where um, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, do you hear in that awareness? If someone's hearing my voice, and the picture is, I'm there, I'm knocking, the Lord is present. But if you hear, if you're aware, and then you open the door, 
That's attentiveness. You hear a knock. It's one thing to be aware, but then to be attentive is to open. He says, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And I I was meditating on this actually this morning, and I thought, that sounds so much like the Song of Songs. It sounds so much like God's desire to connect with us, that he's just there, he's knocking, saying, I'm here. And for us, it's to stop and, are we listening? Are we looking? Are Are we aware? And then it's to open the door. And it says, eat with him and he with me. It's this mutual relationship. We're opening ourselves to God. So here in a moment, we're going we're gonna to move into communion. And as I was thinking about us celebrating communion and, uh, this morning... It's actually a perfect invitation that as we come to the communion table and take the elements, it's a remembering, right? It's a thankfulness. But then what I want to invite you to do is not just stop there, but perhaps take the elements and then just sit for a moment and listen. Listen, how is the Lord knocking? What might the Lord desire to say to you? Because going to the communion table, taking the elements, remembering, giving thanks for his body that was broken, his blood that was shed, it it gets us there. But the point is to connect, it's to listen, to be attentive to him. So let's just take a moment. I want to invite you to a place of prayer, a place of just quieting your heart, quieting your mind. And there's two prayers in the Song of Songs that I just want to invite you to sit with. And then at some point when you're ready, you can go take the elements and then just come back to your seat for a few moments of connection, of listening. And so in the next few moments, sit with this first prayer from Song of Songs 1, draw me after you. It's a prayer of desire. Perhaps you're noticing some desire. Sit with that prayer of just saying to the Lord, draw me after you. The second prayer you might sit with for a bit is I open myself to you.
Hey, thanks for listening to the Life and Rhythm podcast. If you'd like to know more about Rhythm Community Church, you can go online at rhythm.community. Peace.